God. Okay, okay. This is like an Easter basket hunt here. I couldn't find a microphone. I think they're playing games on me. I still didn't find my basket this morning, but uh, that's okay. At least I have the microphone. So good morning and welcome to Washera Community Church. It is a beautiful day to praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Happy Easter to each and every one of you. Christ is risen. He's risen, risen indeed. Yeah. Can you imagine what it'd be like if Christ wouldn't have been an early morning person? I mean, sunrise service, uh, how, how did that, all the stories would have to be changed, the whole narrative. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he suffered and he died, but he paid the price. He paid the cost for each and every one of us. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Believers, non-believers, he paid the price. Even through these times of inflation, it's amazing. With price of sin, is probably higher. The cost was higher. He paid that price. So nothing's too big for, for Jesus. So thank you. Um, if you're new here, welcome. We, if you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you become part of our church family. And um, you're just all so welcome. A couple of announcements we'd like to make. Um, number one, next Saturday at 8 o'clock is our church grounds cleanup. So if you have time, um, next Saturday right here, get your backs and the rakes into shape and have a little fun. As well as the following Friday is uh, the Day of Prayer at the World War II Community Center. So put those on your calendar if you would. And uh, we're all God's people, or at this time of year, we're all God's peeps. That's what I like to say. So, I mean, this time of year, I mean, we can even dress like peeps. Pastels are in and white. So I even have a peep physique going, a little marshmallow going right here. So, <laughs> But anyway, yeah, don't you laugh. <laughs> You're working on that too. Okay, would the ushers please come forward for the offering? If, if it's on your heart to give, please do so. Thanks, Rockstar. Okay. Heavenly Father, we're, we're just so thrilled today that uh, you are our God. Where would we be without you, Lord? Uh, you suffered, you paid the price. You did that for each and every one of us here and everyone in this whole world, Lord, that we would just accept and receive you, Lord can't thank you enough, Father, so we just thank you and just pray that our celebration today is one that uh, gives you the glory that you so deserve. We pray and thank you in your name. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have all this hope that gets us out of our beds and gets us uh, here with your people rejoicing and celebrating something incredible that happened in history, that happened on earth, that changes everything. And as we look at that great event this morning, open our eyes and our hearts and change us by your spirit. Here we are. We want to hear. We want to be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What a great morning. God has even given us some sun for a while. It's supposed to end at 10 o'clock, but so far, so good. And Jeff Diddle, well, he was in fine form, wasn't he? I don't know about his biblical exegesis always, but he was in fine form. So as I said Friday night, it's really good to be with you, sort of. It's good to be with you because Donna and I love Washera Community Church. And the sort of, of course, is because of the retirement of, of Pastor Al, your lead pastor and our 
good friend. And we certainly understand you are experiencing sorrow and will be missing that fine, fine man. But I get to come back next month on the 15th and the 22nd. I'm excited about being able to come and share from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about the coming and going of pastors. It's a unique passage, and we'll take two Sundays to kind of get God's perspective, the way way above 30,000 feet perspective on our pastoral transitions that are difficult down here. This morning, as with Friday night, this is going to be a different kind of sermon. I'm calling it a documentary style because like a documentary, uh, it's going to be the pieces of the, the events of Resurrection Sunday pieced together from the four Gospels as they happen. So it's going to flow right along. You won't be able to follow along in the Bible, so just sit back and relax and and enjoy this incredible, wonderful, true story that changes everything. It was Joseph of Arimathea who asked Pilate's permission to remove the body of Jesus from the cross and bury it. Joseph was a wealthy member of the ruling council of the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin, who had not voted to condemn Jesus and who was doubtless a true believer as seen by his actions. The Romans had no requirement that a victim's body be removed from the cross. In fact, they often left corpses hanging there indefinitely until their bones were picked clean by vultures. It served as a warning to anyone who would defy the empire. But Jewish law required the burial of an executed criminal on the same day as the execution. Typical upper-class Jewish tombs of the time, and Joseph's was probably such a tomb, had two chambers hollowed out of rock. The first was an entranceway into the second, a small square room with a shelf built into a wall where the body was laid. The doorway into the tomb was closed by a very heavy circular stone that rolled down a slightly inclined channel until it rested in place in front of the opening. Nicodemus, another Sanhedrin member who was a believer in Jesus, helped his colleague Joseph in the burial process, bringing a great quantity of spices, myrrh, and aloes that they placed between the folds of the eight-foot linen shroud that he and Joseph wound around the body of Jesus. There was also a separate, smaller piece of grave cloth in which they wrapped Jesus' head and placed it on a pillow of stones, as was the custom of the day. I would imagine they performed their gruesome task quickly and with great sorrow, for the body of Jesus had been mutilated almost beyond recognition as a human being. Some of the loyal women from Galilee watched the pair at work, intending to improve on their hurried job after the Sabbath was passed. The task completed, Joseph kicked away the wedge holding the doorstone in its upper channel, and the great circle of rock rumbled down its track, closing the tomb. It was on the Sabbath itself that the Sanhedrin met together again, 
this was unusual because this was work being done on the Sabbath. But these were politically minded, astute individuals who remembered that Jesus kept predicting that he was going to rise from the dead. And if that should actually happen, or if his disciples should be able to steal his body and convince people that he had risen from the dead, it would be a catastrophe for the Sanhedrin. These awful men who ruled the Jewish nation at the time. It would be worse than Jesus being proclaimed king of the Jews during Passover week. So again, they found themselves approaching the cynical Roman Pontius Pilate and asking for a favor. This time, they wanted some means of ensuring that the tomb could not possibly be disturbed. Pilate, I'm sure, did not enjoy the reminder of what these men had persuaded him to do, so he rid himself of the Jewish leaders as quickly as possible by giving them what they wanted, ordering a contingent of his own highly trained, disciplined Roman soldiers be stationed at the tomb. This was an extraordinary security measure in and of itself. And then added to that, the stone door was secured with an inscribed wax seal, which didn't provide any further strength to the closure of the tomb, but added the authority of Rome. You could not open this tomb without breaking the seal, and he who would presume to disturb the seal would incur the same wrath that had crucified the occupant of this tomb. The disciples of Jesus, in obedience to the laws of Moses, observed the Sabbath day quietly and probably miserably, miserably. But only a few hours after the Sabbath was passed, very early Sunday morning, the first disciples of Jesus to venture out of hiding, Mary Magdalene, another woman named Mary, and a woman named Salome, carrying spices they had prepared to more thoroughly anoint the body of their Lord, approached the garden tomb. The problem on their minds was a practical one. They didn't know anything about the Roman soldiers being there or the seal upon the tomb, but they didn't know how they were going to roll aside uphill this huge circular stone. What they were about to discover was that the stone was back in its upper channel and their Lord was gone. Only hours or minutes before their arrival, God the Father and God the Spirit had kept their promise and raised God the Son from the dead, announcing the event with an earthquake. Love it. Raised is a terribly inadequate term. The Spirit of Jesus returned to a spectacularly transformed body. It had been a natural earthly body like yours or mine, and now, and, and of course, mutilated beyond description. It was now what an apostle will later call a spiritual body. And what exactly that is, we will find out when we get our own. <laughs> then we will really get it. We'll get it. Apparently, after neatly folding the cloth that had been over his face, but without greeting the guards on the way out, 
And without bothering to use the door, Jesus left the domain of the dead forever. It was not in order to let Jesus out, but in order to let other people in that an angel, a messenger of God, appeared on the scene, quite uninvited, ignored the guards, broke the Roman seal by rolling the stone from the door, and then defiantly, I love this, he sat on it just for fun. We're told that his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. His appearance was terrifying to the Roman guards. And this was no little halo over the head angel, okay? This guy shone like the sun from head to toe. Maybe it was some trace of the glory of God which was shining out from this angel, who, like all the angels that are described in the Bible, looked like a male human being wearing a robe, but no wings, sorry, no halo, no harp, no black notebook with a cantata in it. Sorry, not the way they look. In his presence, the trained Disciplined Roman soldiers, the best in the world, conditioned to walk into battle shoulder to shoulder without flinching, fell down in fear as if they were dead. When they were able to get back up on their feet, probably only after the departure of the guy on the rock whom they did not want to see and again, they ran back to the Sanhedrin members to whom they were temporarily accountable, they blurted out what they had seen and were bribed with large amounts of money to say that the disciples of Jesus had overpowered them, think about this, had overpowered them without hurting them and stolen the body of Jesus. Takes more faith to believe that story than to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Meanwhile, The two Marys and Salome arrived just after sunrise and to their amazement found the stone was already rolled away. They immediately assumed that something natural and bad had happened there. The first possibility on their minds was that the body had been taken from this respectable tomb of Joseph to the Valley of Gehenna, the place where executed criminals were incinerated along with the garbage of Jerusalem. Probably distraught and angry, they entered the tomb boldly and found not one, but two bright as lightning angels sitting on the stone shelf where where Jesus' body had been. The angels rose, actually, to greet their female earthling guests, only to see them fall at their feet, of course, as if they were dead, just as the Roman guards had done. But these women were friends of heaven. So they were encouraged to not be alarmed and were assured that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, was not there among the dead, for he had risen. One of the angels commanded the ladies to go and announce to his disciples that Jesus had risen and meet up with them up in Galilee. The women left the tomb, Scripture says, trembling and bewildered. Now, today we would call it shock or trauma. It makes more sense to us than it used to, 
that they actually disbelieved what they had just seen and heard. It was just so freaky to them. Running most likely to the home where the 11 apostles and other disciples of Jesus were still hiding behind bolted doors, perhaps the same room where they had had that last Passover. The women proclaimed not that Jesus was risen from the dead, but that his body had been taken from the tomb to some unknown place. At this, the leaders among the apostles, Peter and John, probably ordering the others to to stay where they were, garnered some uncharacteristic courage, left their hideout, ran for the tomb. Reaching the tomb first, John peered into the darkness but didn't go in. Reaching the tomb second, Peter charged in, of course. And followed by the more timid John, found no body, no guards, no angels, only the linen grave clothes, which Jesus had left behind. And many scholars believe that they found the grave clothes still wrapped mummy style with the body gone from within them. We can credit Peter and John with this. Though they would not be the first to see the risen Lord, they were the first to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. As Peter and John left by one route, Mary Magdalene, alone this time, arrived at the tomb again by another route. Looking into the tomb this time, not daring to walk in as she had before, she saw the two angels again seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the foot, perhaps without their glory on this time, perhaps, looking more human. Perhaps because their earlier announcement had not been believed, one of the angels asked, just like a guy, Woman, why are you crying? Stupid question, right? But fun. Mary answered, still not getting it, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And perhaps just at that moment, the shadow of someone or something passed over her, frightened her a bit. Probably she turned from the angels to the brightness of the morning sun, really couldn't see much, but she saw someone she assumed to be the gardener, the caretaker of the cemetery. The stranger asked her, not not like a guy, but with compassion for her tears, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Still believing he was the caretaker, Mary asked him if he knew where the body of Jesus had been taken. He replied with one word, her name. It's kind of fun to play with how he may have said it, because we don't know. But he may have said it kind of scoldingly, like, Mary, you know. Or he may have said it very compassionately, Mary. Or he may have said it just like he had said it many times before, and she immediately realized. (laughs) She said in Aramaic, Rabboni which means rabbi or teacher. She grabbed him and did not want to let him go and only released him when she was told to go to his brothers, which was a wondrously gracious term for the 11 apostles who who had abandoned and denied him, and tell them the news. With joy this time, not confusion, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast Seven demons. 
ran to the disciples with the news that she had seen the Lord. First person to see him. Meanwhile, other women who had visited the tomb and had also received the angelic announcement that Jesus had risen and also reported it to the band of disciples were now returning to to the tomb. On their way, Jesus met them and greeted them. Unlike Mary, they immediately recognized him. Like Mary, they demonstrated their devotion by falling at his feet, grasping his feet, not wanting to let him go. He quieted their fears and commissioned them as he had commissioned Mary, go and tell what they had seen. Before that wondrous Sunday was over, the very busy resurrected Jesus made several other appearances to his incredulous disciples. I believe he was not only very busy, but he was very joyful. I believe he was nothing like, here's where I pick on the movies, the wooden Jesus, you know, kind of walking around stiffly, speaking in a stained glass voice with a King James Version vocabulary and an English accent. English accent. There were smiles. There were tears of joy. There was fun. I'm going to prove it. I know he had fun that afternoon when he appeared to two of his disciples while walking along a road. They were walking away from Jerusalem. They had heard that Jesus' body was gone, but they did not believe he was risen. They were dejected, totally bummed out, we would say, talking about what a pity it was that they'd been believers in Jesus as the Messiah, but unfortunately, instead of delivering Israel from the Romans during Passover week, he'd been crucified. These guys were completely clueless about why he had died. Jesus joined them at a convergence of two paths. And I know this is a big technical word, but he put the whammy on them so they would not recognize him. He listened to these idiots for a while and then rebuked them for their ignorance of the scriptures and their unbelief and then gave them something I would love to have heard. This amazing explanation of dozens, if not hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah explaining that he had to be crucified and buried and rise from the dead. These men loved what they heard. They begged the stranger to stay with them. And then over supper, he grabbed their attention by taking over the role of the host, which was not his job. He took the bread and broke it. And at the moment he broke the bread, he dewamified them so they could see who he was. And then poof, he was gone just like that. Before these guys could get back to Jerusalem, Jesus beat them to it appeared to the eleven apostles, minus Thomas, entering the locked room without going through the door. He could have used the door, but so much more fun to not use the door if you can do that, right? Showed them his hands and feet, and even ate food among them to demonstrate to them that though he had a body on which he could Uh, excuse me, a body which could now do things which theirs could not. It was a real material body. He was not a ghost or a vision. He was real, and he was alive, and he still is. The historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. The anecdotal evidence 
is overwhelming. The evidence that we have seen in our own changed lives and in the changed lives of other people and people whose lives are being transformed every day is overwhelming. We've seen them in the scriptures. We've seen them in people. If you are not absolutely sure that you are a reborn and forgiven person because you have entrusted the saving of your soul to the resurrected Christ, you will never find a better time to do it than right now. Becoming a Christian involves a miracle on God's part and a decision on our part. So if you've not done so, you can close your eyes right now, kind of ignore the rest of us. Tell God that you are the sinner that should have received what Jesus took for you. Ask Him to forgive you, to make you His own. Tell Him thank you. And then after you get up and go your way, tell someone what you have done. And then I have just a word to Christians. Just a word to Christians. I try to make it brief, but I know, as you do, that the last two years have been really weird, right? I mean, they've been weird. We could say strange, hard, confusing, unsettling, can't do better than weird. But Jesus is still reigning from the right hand of the Father, and he is very much alive and well on planet Earth. Because of the day that Jesus rose, we can still be excited about the future. Now, the immediate future, of course, is going to be messy. But these messy things will come to pass, and they will pass, right? And the long-term future we know from the Scriptures, and it's something to be very excited about. We can be excited about tomorrow because tomorrow when you get up, if you are a Christian, you can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can bear fruit for God. You can be used by God in your world tomorrow. Excited about the gospel. It's so simple. It's so offensive to people who haven't believed it yet, of course. But it's still transforming lives every day. Excited about the church it's still, I know about the church's problems. It's what I do. I'm a church consultant, okay? But the church is still the bride of Christ. It's still the body of Christ. It's still the army of God in the world performing his mission. And excited about heaven. This life is just a short opportunity to impact heaven, your life can impact eternity. Who is there and how much glory Jesus receives? Your life, the most foolish voices that you hear every day, every day. You are hearing voices telling you to live for today. Be a hedonist, a materialist, a, uh, uh, yeah, a narcissist, all of that stuff. Every day. But there are also other voices out there that sound much wiser. They sound better. They're telling you, live for your retirement. <laughs> Save lots of money. Take care of yourself. You know, buy the perfect cabin on the perfect lake with the perfect boat and live for your retirement. But that's just as worldly. That's just as worldly. 
we get to live for eternity. Retirement is short. Eternity is long. And we have the privilege of impacting it because of the day that Jesus rose. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we can have this faith that we have, that we can have this hope that we have, that is based upon actual historical events. We're not dreaming. We're not making this stuff up. We're not choosing to believe it because we like it. It's based on history. Your Son, our Lord, rose from the dead and reigns with you and will come again. And we are so grateful that because of that fact, we are excited about the future. We can be excited about tomorrow, excited about the gospel, about the church, and about heaven. Make us a hope-filled, joy-filled people. And God's people said, Amen. Will you stand with us and we will sing together.